This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Avail helps AECO firms better manage, organize, and navigate information faster. Visit getavail.com today. This episode is sponsored by Confluence. I've invited Randall Stevens, the CEO of Avail, to tell you about it. In 2019, we held the inaugural Confluence event, which was designed to bring together the product managers, the technology developers that are working on the products used daily in the AEC industry, and put them in the room with the design technology leaders from the practice side that are actually implementing and using these technologies. The goal isn't to sell anybody anything at these events. The goal is to get a better understanding of what's working, what's not working, and what would be the best products to develop to be implemented in the AECO industry. We've held these three-day confluence events the past four years and attracted over 100 attendees. We're expanding the mission of confluence this year and bringing it to two local one-day events, one in Southern California on May 16th, where we will attract people from the greater LA and Irvine area to an event space in Orange County for one day of these conversations and another in New York City in August. You can learn more about Confluence at getavail.com slash confluence. This episode is brought to you by Troxel Plus Membership. Learn about the benefits of membership and get your limited time launch offer savings at trxl.co slash launch 20. There's no spaces in that. trxl.co slash launch 20. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the coevolution of architecture and technology. A little bit of housekeeping here before we get into this week's episode. This podcast has a new feature that I want to make sure that you know about. Would you like to get the show notes and links from today's conversation sent directly to your inbox? And then again, each time a new episode comes out, Sign up at trxl.co. Just click on one of the subscribe buttons found all over the site. You can't miss them. Next up is that you can now find this podcast on YouTube. It's one more way to listen, and there will be more YouTube goodness coming in the future as I begin to go beyond audio on the channel. But in an interesting move, YouTube is now promoting podcasts pretty heavily, and I'm there for it. It's worth noting that, yes, you can subscribe to both the podcast in your favorite podcast app and also on YouTube. It won't hurt you, and it'll definitely help the show gain more visibility to help make a positive impact in the building industry. So if you will, please pause the show, look TRXL, that's Troxel, up on YouTube, or click the link in the show notes, and be sure to subscribe over there too. I'll be right here when you get back, so thanks in advance. Okay, in this episode, I welcome Christine Williamson. Christine has spent her career in building science forensics, discovering why buildings fail, and working with owners, architects, and builders to remedy the problems. She's the founder of the Instagram account Building Science Fight Club, an educational project that teaches architects about building science and construction. She graduated from Princeton University and received her Master's of Architecture from New School of Architecture and Design, She's past chair of ASHRAE Technical Committee 1.12, Moisture Management in Buildings, and is a frequent lecturer on building science at universities and professional conferences. 
In this episode, we discuss data versus wisdom, the culture of saying no in architecture, Instagram as a platform for knowledge transfer and teaching, the reality of every building being a prototype, mentorship or lack thereof in the profession, the Kardashianization of social media and the users' expectations of creators on those platforms, getting back to first principles thinking and teaching, the idea of code minimum as an analogy of architectural education, building science for architects, having better frameworks for learning the fundamentals of practicing architecture so one can go farther, faster, and some of our favorite building industry-related Instagram accounts, which are also linked in the show notes. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Christine Williamson. Christine, it's great to have you here today. I'm excited about our conversation. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. If you could give a short or long, however you want, bio, give us an idea of where you're coming from and how you've got to where you are. And we'll get into the Building Science Fight Club stuff, but tell us about you. Well, I am an architect. My background is architecture. I started in an architecture school, but pretty early professionally before I graduated, I developed an interest in some of the more practical elements of the profession. I was working for a really, really fantastic architect based in New York City when I was in school. So I was still a student when working for her. Chris Benedict is her name. Great architect. Really neat work. And she was designing multifamily buildings for the most part. Sometimes it was gut rehab. Sometimes it was completely new construction in New York City. So you've got certain constraints from being in a big city like New York as well. And she was doing extremely energy efficient design and construction. I got to work on and do the detailing for I think the second multifamily passive house in the United States, which was fantastic. It was going to be first, but we had a construction delays. (laughs) We were robbed of the title. (laughs) It was really neat. And even before actually meeting passive house standards, Chris's buildings would use 85% less energy for heat and hot water than typical New York apartment buildings. The reason she knew this and could say this was because she would look at utility bills. So these were not estimated savings. These were actual savings from looking at utility bills on completed buildings. Hmm. And that's really neat. Oh, and she was doing this for no additional upfront construction costs. So sometimes her clients didn't even request this or weren't even interested in energy savings at all. Part of her services. This was how she practiced. It was like, this is what you get when you hire her. Exactly. It was really spectacular. And of course, that's a really neat promise, right, for a student to hear. So save all this energy, no additional upfront construction costs. And she was pretty ideologically or is ideologically motivated on that front in that she's a very passionate environmentalist, but also has a real heavy libertarian streak and believes that conservation and energy efficiency need to make sense on the merit, so absent any kind of government subsidies. Mm. And so the way that you do that, the only way that you can really do that is by really understanding building science and construction. And it was really working for Chris that things that I'd heard about before came alive for me. It was a wonderful job. She um, really encouraged me and other interns to spend a lot of time in the field. It was just fantastic. It was exhilarating to see 
designs actually come to life and how messy construction sites are and all the craziness that goes into getting drawings actually built and then Mm -hmm. documenting and measuring things after the fact. It was really, really neat, exciting time for me. And ever since that experience, I knew, so I knew throughout school, throughout the rest of my education, that that's where I wanted to end up post-graduation. And really after that, I ended up as a result in more of the consulting part of the industry. So while I was doing straight up design work when I was working for Chris, after that, I worked for a big consulting company doing essentially enclosure consulting. So energy wasn't always a focus, although sometimes it was. It was more risk management. So similar in terms of the science behind it and understanding the practical constraints of construction, but the focus was more risk management than energy conservation. And I got to work on a lot of really big projects that gave me just a lot of experience. And I got to see a lot working for that big consulting firm. That's what brought me to Dallas, which is where I live now, but only for a little bit. I loved being a consultant for that reason, that you just get to see so much in architecture. And when I was working for Chris, I only worked on a handful of projects because it takes a long time to see something through. But in consulting, you can see 50 projects in a year. You're only dealing with the enclosure. So the Mm -hmm. layers that separate the inside from the outside. But it's a really great way to learn different means and methods for different building systems. And that was really cool. So that was the sharp turn toward building science that I took after I graduated was really in construction. So although I am a registered architect, just actually recently registered, I really put off taking those exams for as long as I possibly could. Me too. Um, But I'm not a... uh, I don't do traditional design. And in fact, just before we got officially started, I told you we bought a new house. I hired an architect to help me do that. Oh, yeah, because I have way better taste than I can satisfy myself. (laughs) (laughs) The burden is somebody else's. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But um, anyway, so the focus really has been on building science and construction throughout my career. When you said risk mitigation, you're talking about water intrusion, mold, energy, all of those kinds of risks that go along with operating a building and kind of the E&O portion of being an architect. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, it is. It's interesting to me, too, that it's an area of the profession that I don't think we really approach in as disciplined a way as we could. We could benefit. I guess another way of saying that is I think that architects and definitely owners could benefit from taking a more disciplined approach to risk management. And what I mean by that is that if you were to talk to a developer or an owner about the biggest areas of risk in their profession, in their business, they could identify probably a whole bunch of things. Now, I don't know business real well, so I'm going to guess maybe a real business person would be like, yeah, that's not it. But they could tell you like, oh, okay, so it's a big risk for us if interest rates go up or down. That really Mm -hmm. affects our business or Mm -hmm. lead time, supply chain. Like they could tell you a bunch of things or HR related issues. They could identify areas of financial exposure that they need to be aware of and plan for. While they could probably do that pretty well, a lot of those same responsible business people probably couldn't tell you their biggest risk exposure with respect to technical failures in their project. And you can always reduce your risk by spending more money, but that's not always the best option. What we want is to handle risk really intelligently and find a sweet spot where 
we're making really good choices about risk, but we're not overshooting the mark. We're definitely, we don't want to undershoot the mark for sure. Mm -hmm. But I find that as much as we can undershoot the mark with risk, and we really can, we can also overshoot the mark and overspend in areas where we might not need to. For example, if you were to think, this is the only example I can think of off the top of my head, maybe more will come to me later. But let's say windows are risky and you're installing windows, right? There's a high likelihood that they leak. If you're a big developer and you install 10,000 windows a year, 20,000 windows a year, a certain percentage of them leak. Some of them are going to leak because they just got a bad window and some of them are going to leak because of the window to wall interface. Well, there's a lot of different windows you can buy and a lot of different ways of detailing those windows. And what's the cost of replacing windows or repairing stuff when there is a leak or moving a tenant, that kind of stuff. So is there a way that we can alter the detailing to be a little bit more forgiving without moving the needle too much on initial upfront construction costs? At a certain point, that's not going to be worth it anymore, right? Once we've removed the low-hanging fruit, each incremental dollar spent is not always going to be worth it, right? Like, you're not going to get a whole bunch out of that in, say, Las Vegas, but maybe that's a different story in Houston. And we see that come up in a lot of different areas in construction, especially the higher risk ones. So particularly water management related. Yeah. So plaza decks are really big failures, plaza decks, balconies, roofs, and windows and below grade waterproofing. Mm -hmm. So those big areas, there's some trade-offs to be made there. And if you think really intelligently about it, you can end up allocating your resources a lot better and being a lot more intelligent about what's risky and what isn't. And the same goes for architects too. There's a lot of pressure on architects to save costs. And when is it appropriate for an architect to say no and actually walk away? And mm -hmm. when is it appropriate for an architect to kind of well, work with what the contractor maybe has suggested on as a value engineered item? And a lot of times architects aren't very well equipped to make those decisions intelligently. And again, that runs both ways. So if you don't know a lot about something, your safe bet is to say no. Your safe bet is to be more conservative if you don't know a whole lot. If you do know more and you have more experience, you're better positioned to say yes to a proposed savings. That's one way I like to think of myself as helping architects is giving them more of a technical foundation so that they're better prepared to manage their own risk properly because their incentive structure is a little different than developers and contractors. Yeah, right. They can receive a lot of pressure to accept risk that they shouldn't, that's really inappropriate for them to accept. Anyway, so I like to help architects be able to say yes more often and to be really sure when they say no that it's important. When I was working at a firm, the whole risk management department was kind of a consultancy within the firm, right? Like they would weigh in on contract risk, language. There was people who are more on the architecture side who are doing the kinds of things that you're talking about with envelope and details and product selection and the specifications and all those things. And I think a lot of times it was like, here's our recommendation. And then the design team was actually the ones responsible for making the call. Now, I'm sure they could both override each other in certain circumstances. But I guess one thing that I keep thinking of when you're talking about this, because I've lived that, I've seen examples of it going both ways, where it's like, we want to do something different. And it's like, but this thing works. And so the whole idea of squaring up this, this is what works and this is how we've always done it. When there are new products being developed, right. they might not even be really new in air quotes. They might be new to me. 
right? They might have been around for 20 years already. As far as the kinds of risks that you're talking about with water intrusion and energy and thermal breaks and all these things, there's such a risk aversion to trying things they don't know. I don't even want to say new, right, anymore, because it's probably not new. These building products companies, they don't test the waters with products. Products are way too expensive to build for them to test the waters with. It already kind of has to be proven in some way for them to invest in manufacturing line, the sales, the marketing, all that stuff. They don't mess around with prototypical products for the most part. Yeah. It's interesting to me to think about that incredible bifurcation that exists in our industry of like, there are ways to address the things that you're talking about, but the industry doesn't want to move toward them because we feel safe with these things that we already know in the areas where we practice like regionally and things like that. Yeah, there's something to that. I think there's sort of a small C conservatism at play there that's not mm -hmm. bad. There's an instinct in there that's good. I use this example a lot in my teaching. It informs a big part of my life. I think the older I get, maybe it's taken on a bigger thing in my in my life. But the idea of Chesterton's fence, where Chesterton, the old school philosopher, I really don't know anything actually about him except for Chesterton's fence, which is this idea that if you come across a fence in a field or somewhere, before deciding to tear it down, you should understand why it was built in the first place. And I think that it's just so true in so much of life that we can, especially when we're younger in a profession, we can have a lot of zeal to revolutionizing things. And actually, I see it a lot in, especially in other industries, where we've got a love affair with tech right now. And so we're talking about disruption and we like disruptors until we don't like disruptors. and <laughs> Until they're disrupting me. I know, right? But we've got a lot of disruption happening. I see a lot of disruptors engage in sort of famous failures because they tried to disrupt an industry that they didn't really understand. And we can see this in smaller examples on individual projects as well within architecture. So I think some of the instinct to sticking with methods that we know work is a good one. But I also think that we really don't exercise the freedom that we have when we don't understand the principles behind those methods. Mm -hmm. This happens a lot is we develop some sort of standard and then we forget why the standard was developed in the first place, why it works. And when you study that and when you learn why that works, you can understand better how to tweak it or adjust it or discard yeah. it when the situation changes. And you can't really do that if you're just doing stuff out of habit, recycling old details, which I know we do. There's an efficiency to that. But then the downside is, will you start to institutionally, you forget why you did something and maybe the situation isn't the same anymore. So we have more freedom. I get very frustrated with the consultant side of the business where I think there's a culture of saying no. I think people confuse skepticism with intelligence. So they think it makes them seem smarter to be like, oh, well, uh, you know, I don't. Some people say that that's OK, but I, I say no, I say no. Maybe it makes them sound smarter. I, I was exposed to a lot of that when I was at my big consulting firm. I was also exposed to tons of brilliant people and I learned a lot. This isn't a huge knock, but I think there's a lot of different kinds of consultants. And unfortunately, or for better or worse, a big part of that culture in the water management and risk management areas to say no. And that's what they're incentivized by as well. They're not incentivized by taking the risk. Every now and then I would come across reports or drawing markups by, I hesitate to say competitors because our industry is so big. I never really viewed me as directly competing with other enclosure consultants for the most part. There was enough work for everyone. Yes, for the most part. I know it's not always like that. And I just think big picture wise, it's 
anyway, it's a big world. But I'd see some of this stuff and I'd be like, are you kidding me? I couldn't imagine leaving my clients hanging like that where Mm -hmm. it was, well, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that without any indication of what you might consider instead. A solution. Exactly. Here's all the problems. No solution. (laughs) Yeah. But of course, the better you get at something, the more you can understand where an architect is trying to go with something or where a builder is trying to go with something. And you can say, well, what if we could get you 75% of the way there, but with half the risk? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Anyway, opportunities emerge when you understand building science and when you understand construction better. This episode is brought to you by Avail. Avail is the content management system you deserve. With its beautifully simple interface, Avail makes it easy to manage, organize, find, and use your information. Designed by designers for designers and engineers, the Avail platform takes advantage of visual acuity, allowing for a visual audience to identify what they need in a couple of clicks. Avail is designed to serve any content type from any file location and allow for simple, fast deployment of your content. Plus, thanks to powerful integrations with Revit and other applications, you can seamlessly incorporate Avail into all your workflows. Say goodbye to the headache of locating and managing content and say hello to efficiency. To learn more, visit getavail.com. Avail, the information you need faster. One of the themes that's come up quite recently on the podcast and in the work that I'm doing at Tech is this idea of data versus wisdom. And I use versus this whole idea (laughs) of the inundation of data and information that is out there. It's hard to make a decision for, and I guess the reason I'm bringing this up is this whole conversation about risk. And there are people who work in these firms, and I'm thinking of the people who are on that risk mitigation committee, you know, like seasoned architects. It's a really nice way of saying old, gray-haired, but they have battle (laughs) scars. They're amazing. Yes, yeah. These are the best people to talk to. And there's this aversion to talking to these people from the younger generations because the younger generations search for stuff. That's what they do. They're really good at it. Like, let's just go look for that thing. And that isn't just the younger generation. Everybody does that nowadays. It's just like, well, look it up. On There's no wisdom in the things that you really look up, though. And I think this is maybe where we can start to segue into what you're doing with Building Science Fight Club. But this whole idea of the wisdom behind the data is the stuff where the rubber really hits the road. And there's so much almost hidden there because people are afraid to even ask or talk to the crusty old person in the corner that they're really missing out. And this wisdom that is there, the lack of mentorship in the industry, the lack of mentees seeking out mentors in the industry, let alone the other way around, that it's kind of a two-sided problem for sure. I don't know where I'm really going with this other than this whole idea of how do we start to bridge the gaps between wisdom and data, you do actually need both, right? You can't do it all with just one or the other. Exactly. And so I'm just wondering, like, did you see that gap? And that's one of the reasons you started. And maybe you can give us a little bit of a step back and talk about what Building Science Fight Club is to set the stage. But I'm just wondering what inspired you to go there? Was it something like that? Or was it something else kind of aligning your path with the things that you're interested in, the things that you can do? I want to hear it from you, though. Where did this all come from? And maybe we can start to address the gaps that exist and talk about this teaching aspect and how it addresses this lack of mentorship in the industry. Oh, my gosh. There is so much there. There is. I know. I just totally unloaded. So (laughs) go for it. (laughs) 
Well, there's so much that's interesting about that. I don't know that I really thought about it quite in this way as I, you know, so much of life you sort of fall mm -hmm. into. But weirdly, this is just weird. I think it must have been 25 years ago. I heard a sermon and I can't believe I remember this part of the sermon that defined wisdom. Mm -hmm. It was a sermons on wisdom and it defined wisdom. The pastor was uh, my uncle and the pastor defined wisdom as knowing what to do when the regular rules of right and wrong don't apply. And I think that is so true yeah. in so many other areas of life too. Like, what do we do when there isn't a clear, like, well, this is what you do in this situation. Every building we design is a prototype. Right. It's incredible. There's also this idea of asymmetrical information. I think that's a term from economics that I'm borrowing, but I think it really applies in our industry in a lot of different ways where when you talk about mentorship or learning from other people in the industry, the learner isn't actually competent to evaluate how good the mentor actually is or the prospective mentor actually is. I felt this way. This happens in a lot of areas of life, but I felt this way. I had a baby just this past year and I realized to my great, I don't know, dismay, maybe I'm not sure what the right word is there that I wasn't competent to evaluate how good my doctor was. I liked her. I think she yeah. was good, but it was at a point, the kind of care that I was needing, I was technically a high-risk mother because I'm older. Like, I can't read a Yelp review and know if this is a good doctor or not, or if she's going to give me the right care. And I think that- Wisdom is actually knowing that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but there's just, there's a lot of areas of our profession where that asymmetrical relationship exists. So in one area, it exists in the way that you just talked about, in that more experienced people in the industry have this apprenticeship relationship with younger people in the industry, newer entrants to the industry. And how do we connect these two? And how do we make it so that, you know, how does a young person in the industry know who to seek out, who's a reliable source? And that's really hard. And then it exists in another part of our industry, too, in that how do clients know to hire professionals that are competent? Again, I don't think really Yelp reviews do it or the equivalent of, of Yelp reviews really do it. And I think traditionally in other industries, this is where branding comes in, where you'll have Kelly Blue Book type of thing or a brand has a brand reputation. And we've tried to do that in the building industry with certain building standards like HERS ratings and LEED and different certification programs that both certify the professional and certify the building. But there isn't really a universal approach to that. Most buildings don't adhere to any kind of standard apart from the building code. So I guess building code and licensure mm -hmm. itself are the two most prevalent standards. I think we can pretty much all agree that there's some big areas that aren't addressed, important areas in our profession that aren't addressed by that. What do you do when you're trying to have Google teach you wisdom? Like, what do you do to do that? I, yeah. I don't know. You mentioned Building Science Fight Club. So Building Science Fight Club is an Instagram account that I run that I started to, I guess, informally try to fill some of the gaps. I wasn't doing this on purpose to try to, um, to you know, change the industry or anything like that. It was a lot less grand in that early in my career, I was spending a lot of time on job sites. I still do. And I knew that my classmates from architecture school were not. And so I thought, well, you know, if I could take photos of stuff that I'm seeing and mark them up and share them with my classmates, that would be a way to give them a little bit of experience and confidence 
in their practice that they're not learning like in front of their clients or their boss. Yeah. And so I was teaching stuff as I was learning it as well. Sure. So it was a way of filling some of that gap. Architects don't spend a lot of time in the right. field. They spend less time than right. they used to. And even in the past, they've been limited by time and space and budgets. Utilization ratios are more important than exactly. butt in seat. You've got your billable hours to, <laughs> to fulfill. So it's really hard for architects to be drawing things that they can't mm -hmm. actually picture very well. So I started to just share with friends. And then it became really popular. And soon friends of friends were interested in the account and it got much bigger. And around the same time, professionally, I was making some changes. I started teaching at, I was consultant working for someone else. And I started wanting to do more teaching, but I had a billable rate of my own, a billable rate and billable percentage right. that I targets that I had to hit as well. And if I was going to take time to teach, I would have to get paid what I was getting paid to work or, you know, to go do a site visit or something like that. So I figured I liked teaching, so I was going to do it. I wanted to do it, but I needed to get paid. And if I was going to ask for money, I should probably be pretty good. So I thought this thing that I'm doing on Instagram, I can basically use it to kind of practice teaching a little bit. So that was sort of a practice. And then I did it for a little while longer. And then um, I'm an immigrant and uh, got married and, to an American. And I had previously been on a bunch of visas. And I was finally eligible to apply for a green card through marriage. And so I applied. And this is a much more complicated story that's boring and administrative, but I knew that it would mean that I would have to take some time off of um, paid work. <laughs> they let mm. you work. You just can't be paid. <laughs> uh, gotta love Uncle Sam sometimes. Anyway, so I was here and I wasn't employed. And so I thought, well, you know, I'd never been in this position before as an adult and as a professional. So I thought, well, what if I treated teaching on Instagram mm -hmm. like it was my job? That was also a way of addressing some problems in the teaching part of our industry that I had observed from getting into it as a practicing professional. And that is that a lot of the continuing education currently in our industry is provided by materials manufacturers and consultants. And both of those people have interests that are not quite aligned with their audience. It doesn't mean that they're bad. Often the teaching is actually very good. But on the consultant side, the temptation is to convince architects, well, this is very, very hard and I am smart and that is why you should hire me, which is completely antithetical to how I teach. My approach is, well, this isn't as hard as you think it is and you actually know more than you realize. And here's the part of this problem. Let's break this problem down and here's the part that you can reasonably solve on your own if you're you know, 90% of the time you can do this by yourself and say 10% of the time or 5% of the time when it looks like this, mm -hmm. well, you should go hire someone for that stuff. Anyway, that's one problem. And then the second problem, of course, with materials manufacturers is their interests yeah. lie in selling you stuff. It's not always aligned. And different manufacturers right. do that better and worse, right, than others. We've all been to pretty painful lunch and learns. But I thought, what if I taught, what if I use this time where I'm not allowed to work and approached teaching as though it were its only thing, like it were its own reward. This is my job. I'm not teaching to market myself for consulting work. I'm just teaching to teach. I'm not trying to sell anybody anything mm -hmm. except the teaching. <laughs> and then the expectation, I hoped that when I came back, when I got my green card, I would be able to integrate teaching into my own consulting work and 
I'd be able to do paid teaching. And I thought, well, this could be a, an experiment. Like, are architects willing to pay for their own right. education as opposed to doing it through materials manufacturers? I'm wondering, are they willing? <laughs> Sometimes. There's so many things that you're saying that it's very similar to what I'm doing with this podcast, like building a resource for the industry um, like you have done as well. I mean, this is something that has value. And so my question is partially selfish, but I think it needs to be talked about more in the industry. And you said sometimes, right? It's really <laughs> interesting to me how cheap architects are. This is something that I think oh I learned gosh, more I from my wife than anybody, which is pay for the stuff that really matters to you. And so then I have to ask, well, does this yeah. really matter to people? So there's a lot going on in my own head around that stuff, but I'm just wondering what your experience is on that side of it. I'm of a few minds on this. If architects really think that they're going to get something of value from it, they are willing to pay for their own education. Yes. I've certainly been able to do that. I, of course, yeah. also do a lot of stuff for free. Now, I do a lot of stuff for free because I like it. So the Instagram account, it takes a long time to do each of these posts. I do one a week and they take generally between 10 and 30 hours per post. This is a lot. Sounds like a podcast, Christine. <laughs> yep. And actually, other people are like, you should do a podcast too. I'm like, so one is enough. Two, not instead of, but also. Please do that for me. Yeah, exactly. Also, and an email list and a blog and a Facebook group and a, like, no, 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 just, just the one thing. But yeah, it's made sense for me to do that in that it certainly hasn't hurt my career yeah. to be more well-known. Although people assume, I think we're so conditioned in this media environment that we're in, just culturally, not just us, everybody, we're taught that we're valuable as consumers. So people who produce content kind of work for us in a way, which is an attitude I really hate. And it comes up on Instagram where people feel mm -hmm. remarkably entitled to your time and expertise. Um, but our culture really conditions this in us in social media. And I think a lot of people assume that I do this to promote my consulting business and therefore I owe them something just by paying attention because they're potential yeah. customers. And that is not true for consult. Like, I do have a consulting business, but my biggest problem is telling people, no, I'm one person. It doesn't mm -hmm. take a lot of projects to keep me very busy. I feel very fortunate to say that. But I run the Instagram account because A, it makes me a better teacher. B, I really like it. And see, it hasn't hurt to yeah. be better known in the industry, but I certainly don't get paid for it. It doesn't pay for itself. It pays in other ways, right? You've definitely built a platform that establishes your authority in this realm and people trust you because of the consistency in the quality of the product that you produce. Yes, no. This is something that you alluded to earlier and some of the difficulty in finding wisdom, developing wisdom of your own in your own practice. And that is that bizarrely, popularity has become its own credential. True. I was good at my job before I had an Instagram account. And I think to a certain extent, you're right. You did not cite popularity when you were saying that people trust me. You were citing that my presentation makes me credible and that the appeal to first principles and the clarity and the all of that stuff is um, a good way for people to evaluate the information that they're receiving. And is this person trustworthy in this particular area? I would love it if that's why I was popular. But I think, you know, our industry isn't immune to the Kardashianization of our culture either. And mm -hmm. a big reason of why I'm trusted is that I'm popular. And that's not a good reason. But yeah, I guess I'll take it. But... I'm writing down the word Kardashianization right now because that, that's, a, that's a good word. <laughs> yeah. 
This episode is sponsored by Confluence. I've invited Randall Stevens, the CEO of Avail, to tell you about it. In 2019, we held the inaugural Confluence event, which was designed to bring together the product managers, the technology developers that are working on the products used daily in the AEC industry, and put them in the room with the design technology leaders from the practice side that are actually implementing and using these technologies. The goal isn't to sell anybody anything at these events. The goal is to get a better understanding of what's working, what's not working, and what would be the best products to develop to be implemented in the AECO industry. We've held these three-day confluence events the past four years and attracted over 100 attendees. We have an exciting agenda plan for our annual event in October. The theme this year is going to be focused around AI and machine learning and its applications in the AEC industry. You can learn more about Confluence at getavail.com slash confluence. Being on a platform like Instagram has been kind of interesting in that way as well, in that I'm teaching technical content, which is off brand for the platform itself. Like I've been called an influencer before, which is really sort of funny because I don't sell lip gloss. Like this is really different. I'm in a really different business than um, than people who are you know, affiliate marketing for Nordstrom. It's very different. It's funny to be on a platform and using it. And you're not alone, right? I mean, in the architectural space and the construction space, there's a few out there. And I'll just plug them real quick, but there's Troy Donovan. Oh, his, he's exactly who I was thinking of. Yeah, the Donnies, the underscore Donnies. And I'll put a link to that. You know, and he's done some teaching, too, that's also fantastic. And then the other ones I love are like Awesome Framers and Rising or Build. And these are people in the construction side who... Man, talk about getting eviscerated in the comments. I can't believe the entitlement in the comments. So maybe contractors who watch other contractors do work have all kinds of things to say and couch potato kind of commentary. But it's pretty incredible that he, I guess as a contractor, maybe you just have thick enough skin to let that stuff roll off. But it's brutal. Oh, Reisinger's laughing all the way to the bank on that one. And he started doing this before anybody really was doing this in our industry and people looked at him and were like what are you doing because he'd film stuff like 10 years ago 15 years ago i've known matt for a long time and people were like what are you doing man right and now rock on matt (laughs) (laughs) cash those checks he does it a little bit so i'm really explicitly non-sponsored content on my page. And that is not Matt's business model. Matt's an educational account, but he's directly sponsored by manufacturers, which is not a criticism, just a difference. For the manufacturers, it's better to have somebody else talking about them than them. And he's providing a service. Oh yeah, of course. He's educating people about the benefits of these things. Again, from somebody with trust and authority because of an account on social media. And going back to this whole idea of where do people get their wisdom from, I think that's what's so interesting to me about this approach on Instagram as a teaching platform, on a platform that is not about teaching at all, right? It's about it's about scrolling and engagement and double taps and all these things. It's interesting to me that you guys have found a way to deliver something of value to so many people harsh critics, whatever, there's a reason that you are quote unquote popular. But I think it's super interesting that this is where a generation or at least a population of people are turning to get some of this information. Of course, it's interspersed with all the other crap too, but it is interesting that you found a way to do that there. 
Yeah, it's, I wonder where it's going to go. And I've got some mixed feelings about it. Some sort of random thoughts related to what you just said there. First of all, the comments. I try to engage, especially with the critical ones, as long as they're critical in normal ways. They don't even have to be constructive. They can be a little bit rude too. Um, and sometimes outright rude. If it sort of matches the type of comment that an architect might get on a job site from a real contractor or from a client or something like that. Because I recognize that a really big part of a lot of people struggle in their career, and definitely this was true of me, was being young in the profession and not having a lot of authority on a job site. And I would learn about something like the way something should be done, but then I'd be on a real job site and have to compromise. And I'd have to know like on this scale of, well, this is what should be done and this is what's being proposed. How far apart are those two points? And can I move it closer to the should be done? And if I'm not, what's likely to happen? Like, how bad is it? Is it walk off the job bad or is it just eh, not great? Being able to locate yourself on that scale and know how to answer normal pushback that you get related to budget and constructability, especially, I think it's really helpful to hear for other people to watch how someone like me will engage with comments that these people are likely to get themselves. Also, it's way easier to get that question when you're sitting in your pajamas at the kitchen table, as I am when I'm answering these, not on an actual job site. That's one part of this comment section thing. Learning on social media or learning online like this, there's definitely a community aspect to it, but the stakes are really low for people. And that's a real benefit. Most of the learning they're getting is in front of colleagues and people that maybe that they have an otherwise adversarial relationship or slightly adversarial relationship mm -hmm. with, and that can be hard. So there's a benefit to the social media aspect. But another part of this I've realized is that the people in the comment section and the people who engage with mm -hmm. my posts are typically not my actual customers. And that's like overwhelmingly the case. The people that I just get sort of shocked by it in real life where I'll meet people, I'm not aware of their following me or their presence at all on Instagram. And they're like, oh yeah, I know who you are. I know your work. I'm familiar with you. But they would have never, ever clicked like on a post. Right. Well, there's most people are lurkers like that. I've had people in line say, I know your voice. And it's like, what? Kind of weird. It's a funny world like that, but we can confuse the loudest voices from our actual customer. Yes. And yes. I walk a lot just for pleasure. I enjoy walking and I stop at every construction site and just take a look at it. I was walking through one of the neighborhoods in, in Dallas and came across a mock-up. This was a residential project and they'd done a mock-up, which was already impressive. And I noticed a, um, a SEGA product which is a Swiss company. They make um, really fantastic tapes and adhesives for flashing windows, or among other things. And I stopped and I was taking a picture of the, from the sidewalk, I'm not on this job site or anything. Mm -hmm. I'm just taking a picture of the, of the mock-up. And the contractor came over and actually recognized me. He said, are you Christine Williamson? I said, Whoa. yeah. I asked him about the mock-up and I, was, I, I noticed the Sega. I was like, that's really fantastic. It's the first time I've seen this in Dallas. And the guy said, well, I heard about it from Matt Reisinger. Uh, and I go figure, you know, so yeah. I doubt this contractor had ever, you know, commented on either one of our posts right. engaged at all. But it is interesting how information spreads in the industry and how people end up making decisions. You're sort of it's definitely not a direct link to like the people who take my class are definitely not the people who engage with me online. Right. At first, I was really disappointed by that, actually. Now I'm really encouraged because I think online stuff can get kind of corrosive. So yeah. Um, yeah. 
so I'm delighted that it's not it's not a real reflection of of most people. Yeah. This episode is brought to you this week by Troxel Plus membership. You should become a Troxel Plus member today. Members get some great perks. For instance, you get an ad-free version of the podcast and the show notes, and you can listen to your ad-free feed in whatever podcast app you already use. You'll also get the show notes sent directly to your inbox without ads, which includes all of the links to what we talk about during the episodes, so you'll never miss a thing. The biggest thing about becoming a member is that you'll be directly supporting the reason this show exists, which is to capture long-form conversations with my guests from the architectural community and beyond to have a positive impact on the present and future of the profession. The ad market is pretty bad right now. The podcast would not exist without our members. And for those of you who are one, I am very thankful. So for those of you who are hearing this on the public feed, I hope you'll consider it. For a limited time, there's a special launch offer at trxl.co slash launch 20. You can check that link in the show notes to get a nice discount if you sign up for the annual membership option. That's trxl.co slash launch 20, no spaces in there, for a limited time. I'm so thankful for our members, and I hope you'll become one of them. You talked about the amount of work that goes into creating these once a week posts, 10 to 30 hours, and there is the learning on the job. There are these lunch and learns that happen in offices and, you know, it's the same course that the person makes the rounds to all the different offices in the area. And that information is really product specific. There's rules around what a lunch and learn can and can't be. And we don't need to get into the specifics of that, but it's like, it's it's what they specialize in or it's what they sell. Let's say it that way. I don't know if they specialize, not always, but this idea of what you're putting together and these details, these notes, these assembly drawings and really this layer of presentation on top of base layers the parts and then you've got all this stuff over the top of it that's really where you're explaining how and why it works the way that it does it's pretty incredible to me to hear how much time and effort you put into those posts especially in contrast to what I think we see in the industry. Okay, so I'm going to go another like slight diversion here. This whole idea of those lunch and learns and even your post too, I think similarly, the timing is like probably not right for anybody who's watching that stuff. You're hoping to create something sticky enough that people will remember the principles of what you're teaching so that when they are doing that thing, they do it better the next time. Yeah, people come back to it. Yeah, that's a cool thing too, right? You can bookmark it and save it. I don't know if you have a compilation anywhere of all this stuff, but that would be pretty sweet if there was like a library or something. But these lunch and learns are never timed right for what I need to do on my project today. As a profession, as an industry, that's pretty broken. That's something that is interestingly broken. Like how has that not been solved yet? And then there's people like you who are trying to solve it as a piece of the bigger puzzle on social media And the courses that you offer, again, I'm kind of not going anywhere with this, but just kind of laying out some different options that I see that are interesting and kind of alarming at the same time. I think you're absolutely right. And I think actually the most logical place to begin addressing this is actually in formal architecture education in school. Mm -hmm. Building science and construction are hard because they're dynamic and they're hard because architecture is hard. It's just Mm -hmm. hard. We have to think in three dimensions. We're dealing with lots of different materials, you know, late coordinating, big budgets, all kinds of crazy stuff. Architecture is hard. The building industry is hard. The setup that we have right now has made something already complicated even more complicated, mm. where 
it is hard to learn something in a lunch and learn or even on a on one of my Instagram posts. And actually that's been the biggest challenge for me is to distill something down to I have 10 slides on Instagram. Like mm. how do I communicate something in 10 slides? It's uh, it's made me a much better teacher. But you know, you can do a little bit of learning that way, but you're not going to transform your profession that way or even you're probably not going to see a post at the exact time that you need it or hit that lunch and learn at the exact time that you need it. I think that what is more helpful is to already have a framework for understanding building science and construction. Mm. And right now, we just don't. Yeah. I don't see it. I don't know every architecture school, right. but I haven't heard of it or really seen it in any school. Yeah, because I know some, like, I don't know, the school that I went to was very hands-on with that kind of stuff. But how far can they actually go in a quarter or a semester? Because you're not going to get that many courses because it's all about design anyway. Yeah, I think even within those courses, though, it's everything is taught in sort of a piecemeal way. So I liken this to learning a language. The way that building science is taught is the equivalent of picking up a phrase book for, you know, whatever country you're visiting, like an Italian phrase book. You memorize the phrases that you use the most often. And that does the trick for a mm. lot of what you want to communicate abroad. And that's our approach right now. That's the lunch and learn. And that's the, at best, I think, that's what we get in architecture education, like formal education, you know, when you, you arch or arch. You know what's going through my mind right now, and, and you alluded to it earlier when you talked about the building code. This is our version of code minimum. This is the educational version yeah. of code minimum. And I think it's taught that way because for the most part, the people teaching it, that's how they understand, understand it as well. It's mm -hmm. this unrelated or loosely related collection of facts. And they're teaching this collection of facts to students. They're saying like teaching phrasebook stuff. Like when you see this, do this. When you see this, do this. And it's just a whole collection. It's like a like a phrasebook of choose your own adventure type of thing. And that's a really, really hard way of learning. And what I've tried to do in my teaching, I have like a roughly 10 hour course called Building Science for Architects. And my goal in setting that up, and I'm not intending this as a plug. I mean, I guess it is a plug, but I'm trying to make a point. And that is that if you can give people a framework, and I take about 10 hours to give people a framework so that after they've got the framework, everything else becomes reinforcement. Like they know how to classify the examples mm -hmm. of like other stuff they see. So the, the language equivalent would be, well, you've just taught somebody the basic grammar and then after that, they're building their vocabulary, mm -hmm. but they understand how to form a sentence. They understand nouns, verbs, adjectives, you know, like I think if we start with a better framework, then the lunch and learns and Instagram posts, that kind of stuff and job experience and meeting a really generous contractor. I mean, generous with his or her time and expertise, mm -hmm. like all of that or materials manufacturer mm -hmm. that can fit into this framework and you can evaluate. We talked about earlier asymmetrical information and how it's really hard to evaluate what someone else is telling you. Well, if you have this foundation in the sort of first principles, you can better evaluate what someone is telling you later, like way later, 10 years into your career, right. you meet somebody who tells you something and you say, huh, well, that's consistent with how I understand first principles, or that's inconsistent. Mm -hmm. So am I wrong? Do I need to adjust my thinking here? Maybe I've misunderstood what they're saying. Maybe I've understood, um, how, maybe I haven't learned something actually quite right. But at least you have a process for evaluating new information. 
part of the reason I, I haven't formally said this in this podcast, but um, but it's not a secret. I'm I had a baby, so I'm on maternity leave right now. But um, in the fall, I start teaching full time as a professor in the architecture department at Virginia Tech, mm-hmm. where I hope to do some of this work, give students a framework mm-hmm. so that when they leave, they're not going to be able to design a building by themselves right when they graduate. Right. That's a sort of silly expectation. That's a, that's a I, messed up framework in itself right there is, is, right. is that everybody needs to be able to do all this all by themselves. Like that is not reality in any shape. Exactly. We're lifelong learners in this profession, but if we can start with the framework and at least my part of this, like architecture is much, much bigger, obviously, than building science and construction. Mm -hmm. I really, and maybe this will change when I actually get to teaching, I think that that is doable in a semester or two or certainly within the program of formal architecture education. I think it, it is possible to have students graduate with a framework so that they can be better learners as professionals when they when they actually enter the profession. And I've seen that in my course. It's not going to make you a building scientist. If you take the course, you're not going to be able to hang your shingle out and be like, yeah, now I know now I know more than John Straub and Joe Stebrook, who's my father, full disclosure, and you know, all these other fantastic building scientists. But you are going to be able to do your job properly and know when to ask for help better. And I I think that is not out of reach, but it's eluded us so far. Yeah, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up this conversation. This has been fantastic. And I feel like we hit kind of all the points that I wanted to at least introduce the audience to in this conversation with you. And I'm really (laughs) excited about your next chapter. This is, to me, this is obviously an obvious next step. And I'm sure it wasn't obvious when you started doing all this back then. But looking backwards, it's all led to this. And this is really exciting. I'm happy to hear that you're taking this step. I know this is a big move, but this is going to be, if anything else, another huge learning experience for you and for the students that you're going to be working with. And I'm excited to hear how that's going to go because you are a fantastic teacher. Oh, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I had such a hard time learning it that maybe uh, difficulty in learning makes an ingredient to to good teachers. I don't know if you're going to be able to keep up Instagram once you start doing that, but Obviously, this is a a fantastic resource. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. We'll put a link to the course that you were sheepishly talking about (laughs) right there. Also, like full disclosure, and I don't I don't know how you're gonna edit this and if you want to include this portion is Mm -hmm. it's I don't want people to take the course for the sake of taking the course. I want them to take it if they really think they can benefit from it. So Mm -hmm. I don't do any marketing really. It's just word of mouth. So I I don't want I certainly don't want to pressure people to to take the course, but if It would be worth considering if these topics interest people. Fantastic. That big theme about the wisdom behind so many facets in the industry, like you were talking about, can you find a builder that is just generous enough to share? Can you find somebody on the product side who has the experience and the wisdom behind how their product interfaces with the three other things that it's going to touch in the wall system? And can they point you in the right direction? Like those people do exist. And oh, absolutely. That, that to me is that is what we should be striving to find are those dot connectors out there. And you're obviously one of them. And so I appreciate the work that you've done, that you've put yourself out there to create. I mean, like you said, like nobody's paying you to do this. You're doing this on your own volition. And that's a fantastic thing. And I encourage the audience, if you've never seen Building Science Fight Club on Instagram, definitely check it out. And uh, you'll see what an amazing resource it actually is. And I think it is, again, fascinating to see the social media side of architectural education, building science education, 
and how you've been able to make something from that. And uh, of course, there's no easy like, oh, well, that led to this and this makes total sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And that's what's so interesting <laughs> about it, you know. So thank you, Christine. I guess maybe a, a little bit of a it's my take on the culture of apprenticeship in our in our profession. And that looks like a lot of a lot of different things. We're a profession of pretty creative people. And so we apply that to all kinds of things, including how we learn and how we teach. Yeah. Non-standard, right? <laughs> exactly. <It's> Non-obvious. <laughs> okay. Well, links to all this in the show notes, everybody. And if you're interested in getting those show notes emailed to you, head over to the website at trxl.co and hit that subscribe button so that all of the links will show up in your inbox whenever a show goes live. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our members this week. Find out how you can become a member at trxl.co and I'll talk to you again next week.